In Job chapter 9, Job gives us an amazing picture of who God is. And it's in that very passage that Job asks the most important question that anybody could ask. How can a man be made right before God? Job is basically asking, can a mere human have a relationship with God who is perfectly holy, infinite, and mighty? And we can be thankful that in great detail, the Apostle Paul answers that question in the book of Romans. Romans is the Apostle Paul's longest New Testament book, and he gives us the most complete doctrinal treaties in the entire scripture. The Apostle Paul writing to the Roman believers gives us his introduction in chapter one. Last week, Mitchell preached from verse one where Paul begins his introduction, introducing himself Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel of God. Romans is about the gospel of God, the good news. It is the gospel of God. God is the source, the author, the implementer, the completer of this good news, of this gospel. It's God's good news for man. Paul, in verses 16 and 17, gives us the theme of the entire book. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, But the righteous man, the just, shall live by faith. So the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel of God that reveals God's righteousness and is received through faith and lived by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins to get into the meat of the book. After the introduction, beginning in verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul speaks to all of us that all men have been found guilty in the eyes of God, were guilty before Him. In chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32, Paul speaks to those who are without the law, the Gentile, the immoral man, those who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Verse 18, he begins this section, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul shows us here that the Gentile, the immoral, are under God's righteous judgment. While the truth of God revealed in creation cannot save us, as he teaches here, man's awareness of God through creation, even God's eternal power and Godhead, deems man without excuse. It deems us guilty. Just through the light that we have, the truth that's revealed in creation, it is enough to make us accountable before God. So how is God's wrath being revealed, present indicative? It's continually being revealed. He speaks in verse 24, this is how he's revealed his wrath. God gave, gave them over to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved or reprobate mind to do the things which are proper. And yet there's a list there of sins common among people, common among the Gentiles in particular, that seems to culminate to some degree 
in men with men and women with men, women with women, men with men. Get that right. And it is, in a sense, like the ultimate, a rebellion against God's order, against what God made as natural. But then you come to verse 32 of chapter 1. It teaches us that not only do they practice these things that are worthy of death, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That Greek word, hearty approval, is to applaud. Folks, that is exactly where we're at today. Not only do these people do these things, suppressing the truth of God so that they can live the way they want, but they give hearty approval. They applaud those who do the same things, and they condemn those who stand up against them. And that's where we're at here in America today. People applauding the unrighteous as if it's a good thing. It's a sad state of affairs in our world today. Then in chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 8, Paul speaks to those with the law, the Jew, those who are outwardly moral people. Paul demonstrates that the Jews are no different than the Gentiles. They are also in sin. (coughs) Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11, he tells us that there's no partiality with God. He speaks to those who condemn the Gentiles, the Jews, but practice the very same things. Maybe secretly, but they practice the same things, so they're also guilty. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 2, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Sounds to me like that those who have more truth, that have more light, are even more accountable before God. Paul says that because the Jews say one thing and do another, in verse 24, that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. You know the Jews, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were called of God to be a light to the Gentiles? But because of the way the Jews were in that day, as they have been throughout history, as we all have been at without, throughout history as well, but because of the way the Jews are not living for God and not in faith, the name, God's name, is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Those whom God chose and gave the covenants are no different than the Gentiles. That's what Paul's saying in this section. So when you come to chapter 3, verse 9, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul declares, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul declares all under sin. Verse 9 of chapter 3, What then? Are we, the Jew, better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged, both Jew and Greeks are all under sin. All men are sinners, All are guilty before God. And then in verses 10 through 18, Paul strings together various Old Testament texts to reveal the depravity of all men. As it is written, now quoting Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is none righteous, not even one. You may think that you're righteous, but there's not one. God looking out at all of creation, at all of His... uh, people created in his own image there's not one single one that's right before god there's not one that's righteous then quoting from psalm 14 and psalm 53 
in verse 11 and 12, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. People may seek a form of God created in their own mind or created in some religion, but there's none who really seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. Again, not even one. Not one of us is good before God or does good before God. Then he quotes from Psalm 5, 9, their throat is an open grave. Think about that. Think about the significance. An open grave. Stench. Makes you sick at your stomach. That's how we are before God. Our, the things that comes from our mouth, our throats are an open grave. And their tongues, they keep deceiving. That's the practice of man. That's the practice of us apart from Christ. Then he quotes Psalm 140 verse 3. The poison of asp or vipers is under their lips. That's how God sees the mouth of the unrighteous. Psalm 10, verse 7, is quoted in verses 14, 15, and 16, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Then quoting from Isaiah 59, 7, and 8, and the path of peace they have not known. You see... Apart from Christ, man still in his sin, every one of us have our own little kingdom. And anything that gets in the way of our own little kingdom, in a sense, man, you better watch out. But we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these needs will be added to you. Psalm 36, 1 is quoted in the last verse. And he really nails it home here. He identifies the real problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's where the world is at. That's where we're at apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul pens these inspired words, quoting the very Old Testament words of God, declares all men in sin. All are guilty. There's not one righteous, no, not one. All continually fall short. That's the present tense there. Continually fall short of God's glorious standard. We've all missed the mark. We're all separated from God. In chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 5, we're at enmity with God. We're enemies. We're children of Satan. We're born children of Satan. We must be born again to become children of God. And God tells us in this passage there's no partiality with God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. If you're born under the old covenant or circumcised into the old covenant it doesn't matter if you grow up in a christian home all are under sin there is no distinction there is no different apart from paul's introduction now when you come to chapter 3 verse 20 you're left with ultimate hopelessness i mean think about the significance of who we are god's description of us think about it all men are guilty sinners before god unable and unwilling to turn to God on their own. You know, I've found as I've witnessed to people over the years that people are, a lot of people, are very quick to admit that they're sinners. But they don't understand what that means. They don't understand the significance of being guilty before God, of breaking God's law. 
Of course, we break God's law. We sin because we're born sinners. It's the natural outcome of being born in this world in Adam and not in Christ. But people don't understand what that means. That it means an eternity in hell separated from a holy God. From I should say, we're not separated from God, but we're separated from His favor. We're separated from His goodness, His love, His mercy, His grace. Thank God, Paul doesn't end the book here. And of course, thank God for the introduction that gives us a little bit of a glimpse. It like parts the curtain to tell us what's coming. Because in chapter 5, chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, Paul declares that the guilty are declared right before God through faith. Here we come to one of the most amazing passages, the text that Chris read this morning. One of the most amazing passages in all the Scripture. Let's break down the passage. Verses 21 through 28. First notice the glorious plan, God's glorious plan from ancient days. Verse 21. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul begins this verse, but now. This is in contrast to the previous section, that all men are guilty before God. It's in contrast to chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul writes, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was believed by the Jew to be the source of a relationship with God. But Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh, no flesh will be justified, declared righteous in God's sight. Rather, according to verse 19, two verses before verse 21, the law declares the whole world guilty before God. (coughs) Folks, the law does not save. It doesn't make us right before God. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the old covenant law given to Israel or whether you're talking about any set of laws that people establish or any church establishes. It doesn't make you right. It doesn't change the heart of men. If you think that God will accept you because you put the Ten Commandments upon your wall, nothing wrong with doing that, and then you do your best you can to try to keep it, if you're trusting in that, you're sadly mistaken. The law is simply a mirror that reveals our depraved condition because every time we try to keep it, we might focus in one area and then we find ourselves stepping out in another. Over and over we break the law. And that's exactly where God wants us. He wants us to understand our depravity. He wants us to understand how much we need Him and so that we would trust in Him. Verse 21, again, he says, But now, at this time, this is the time in history that God would provide satisfaction for sin. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time came, it was exactly the moment in history that God would send His Son. It was God's plan prophesied. The Messiah, the Christ, the one that God had promised, the one that God had put His finger on, the one that God had anointed to come and save man from their sins. 
Listen to what he says. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The law reveals our sinfulness, but God changes the heart. He makes us sons of the living God. We're not born into this world, sons of God. We're born into this world, sons of Satan. Verse 21 again, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has appeared. It's been made apparent. Apart from the law. Thank you, honey. So salvation is the work of God. The gospel makes the righteousness of God apparent. God reveals His righteousness, His own holiness, His moral purity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel demonstrates God's righteousness, the eternal righteousness of God by which men can be made right with God. It's by the righteousness of God that we're made righteous. Our righteousness in Christ is based on His righteousness. The gospel manifests the righteousness of God. It makes clear that God is righteous because He didn't just overlook sin. He didn't just forgive for the sake of forgiving, but He provided a substitute, and that's what we see in this passage. Notice it's being witnessed by the law and the prophets in verse 21. So this is not some new kind of righteousness. The law and the prophets proclaim God's perfect righteousness. They affirmed that man was unable to achieve God's righteousness on their own and they point ahead to the coming Savior. That's what the law and the prophets do. The law and prophets also point to the new covenant. God promised that He would give man new hearts, writing His laws on their hearts and their minds declaring, I will be their God and they will be my people. So that we can walk in newness of life. We can walk in a relationship with Him. Folks, we're living in that day that began with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're living in that new covenant in which we can have a relationship with God in an intimate way and walk with Him. It's almost as if we're going back to the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the evening. We can walk with Him by the power of the Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice again, the righteousness of God through faith has been manifested. Verse 22, even (coughs) the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) For there is no distinction. It is allergies. I promise I've had them for weeks. The righteousness of God, His moral purity, His holiness, is received through faith. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. There's no distinction. Paul later demonstrates that salvation coming through faith actually preceded the giving of the Old Covenant. It preceded the law. He goes back to Abraham in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Verse 3 says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, 
and it was accounted. It was imputed. It was credited to him as righteousness. The cause of his faith, through his faith, God imputed his very righteousness to Abraham's account. It wasn't based on keeping the law. It was based upon faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says again in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness does not originate from within us. We have no righteousness apart from Christ. We have no righteousness to fall back on or to look to. The righteousness of God here is not based on our ability to keep the law. Rather, it's based on God's righteousness and is received through faith in Jesus Christ alone. What does faith mean? You know, I often get concerned because so many people think of faith as just believing the facts about Jesus Christ. But the word uh, pistis or faith means a firm persuasion, a conviction, a confidence, a trust in God and His Word, in His faithfulness to keep His promises. It's not believing just that God exists or even that Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's believing God. It's trusting Him to save you. It's putting all your confidence in Christ and Christ alone to save your wicked soul. Notice God's righteousness and the purchase of sinful man out of sin's bondage in verse 23. And I put verse 23 and 24 together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Who are these that God justifies by His grace? Who are these that God declares righteous? That's what justify means, to be declared right before God, to be declared righteous, to have His righteousness. Who are these? Verse 23 tells us, Thank God it's those who have sinned and continually fall short of God's glorious standard. That's who God makes righteous. Sinners. The word sin means to miss the mark. It's like shooting at a bullseye, shooting an arrow and trying to hit the bullseye. We ought not only miss the mark one time, but we continually miss the mark. We continue, not only do we miss the mark, we continually fall short. We don't even make it, what do you call the big thing? Not The target. You don't even make it to the target. We fall short. We don't even get there. More or less hit the bullseye. That's how God sees us. Because our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. It might look good when comparing it to somebody else. But it means nothing before God. We have no righteousness. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These are those whom God justifies. You know what Jesus said? This is such an amazing statement. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank God. Because I know where I fit. I fit in the category of sinners, as all of us do, according to Romans chapter 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3. 
We are sinners before God. We need His forgiveness. We need Him to justify us. Later in the book of Romans, in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, For hardly, or for one, will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good one, a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Who did Christ die for? He died for sinners. He died for not the righteous. There are no righteous. He died for those who were, by God's power and His Spirit, admit that they're sinners and look to Him through faith. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justified means to be declared righteous, to be declared by God righteous before Him or right before Him. It's not that God first enables us to live righteously so that He can then consider us righteous. Not at all. He declares the sinner righteous, doesn't He? God declares the sinner righteous through faith in His Son. Paul adds to this truth in chapter 4, verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Once again, Abraham believed God. He didn't say he believed in God. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. The word credited or imputed means, it's an accounting term. It means to place on the account of another. God took his perfect righteousness and placed on the account, the spiritual account of all those who believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice being justified as a gift by his grace. As a gift is the word gratuitously or freely or without a cause. It's not something that we've earned. What is grace? It's God extending his favor on the undeserving. It's been called unmerited favor. It's the goodness of God bestowed on the undeserving. Years ago, I was reading a book by Chuck Swindoll, The Grace Awakening. And I'm not putting a stamp of approval on all of his theology, but I do believe he's a man that loves God and believes his word and preaches truth. In that book, Grace Awakening, he gave the best illustration of grace, the best human illustration of grace that I've ever read. Please understand it breaks down on at least a couple of different levels, but it gives us a con concept of what grace is really like. So, will you graciously listen to the words? He writes this, Let's imagine you have a six-year-old son whom you love dearly. Tragically, one day, you find out that your son was horribly murdered. After a lengthy search, the investigators of the crime find the killer. You have a choice. If you used every means in your power to kill the murderer for his crime, that would be vengeance. If, however, you're content to sit back and let the legal authorities take over and perform a fair trial, and he pleads guilty, and the sentence is capital punishment, then that's justice. But if you should plead for the pardon of the murderer, forgive him completely, invite him into your home, and adopt him as your son, that is grace.
Yes, it breaks down. I understand that. But that's the concept of grace. The concept of grace, of the word translated grace in the New Testament. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is delivering by means of paying a price. It's to be bought back, in other words. It's commonly used in Greek literature and in the Bible, paying a ransom to free a prisoner from his captors or paying the price to free a slave from his master. God has paid a price in Jesus Christ to free us slaves from the slave market of sin, from being separated from God. That's redemption. Notice we're justified freely by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This redemption, this salvation, this justification comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus Christ plus keeping the law. It's not Jesus Christ plus your very best or any effort on your part or water baptism or giving money to the church or attending a service or being good to your family. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. Salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. You cannot add anything to what He has done. His work was efficacious. It was sufficient on Calvary's cross. Notice finally, satisfaction, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Dr. John MacArthur writes, because man cannot become righteous on his own, God's gracious God graciously provided for his redemption through the atoning sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. That sacrifice was not made in the dark or even hidden or even in the hidden and holy resource recesses of a sacred temple, but openly on the hill of Calvary for all the world to see. God displayed Jesus Christ and His sacrifice publicly as a propitiation in His blood. Propitiation hilasterion means appeasement or satisfaction. The Hebrew equivalent is used to refer to mercy seat. It's where God's wrath was satisfied when the blood of the animal was placed it was a temporary, I understand it was a temporary covering, but it provided temporary satisfaction before God. It brought uh, forgiveness to people. God publicly displayed Jesus Christ on the cross as a propitiation, as a satisfaction for sin. Hilasterion covers two concepts, and these are important. Ex, uh, propitiation and expiation. Expiation is the act of atonement or payment of a penalty. Expiation results in propitiation. Both concepts, sometimes one, when the word is used in the Greek, one idea is more prevalent than the other, but it really covers both. Propitiation is the appeasement or the satisfaction of God that results in a changed attitude of God towards the sinner. So biblical expiation is an atoning act that results in propitiation. God's anger against us is taken away. 
It's based on Christ's atoning sacrifice. So through faith, we're not only not, we're no longer enemies under God's righteous wrath. We are at peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It's propitiation in His blood. Peter wrote to the believers scattered throughout the Roman province. Chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. There's been this debate in the last 50 years or so. What was efficacious for our salvation? Was it the blood of Christ or the death of Christ? And I say this, it was the death of Christ by the shedding of blood. He couldn't just die in any other way. He had to die by the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood was significant. It was the required payment for sin. It was the just payment for sin. It was God's way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So why did God display Christ as satisfaction for our sins? He says in verse 26, For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just, He would still be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, MacArthur writes, referring to the putting of death of God's own sinless Son, that through that heinous act on men's part, God not only manifested His divine righteousness by offering His own Son, but also used that act of divine grace to demonstrate His divine righteousness. God saves man because of His great love for us but also for His own glory, also to demonstrate His righteousness through the satisfying sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's sufficient. It satisfied God's demand for the payment of sin. And in doing this, God remains just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You understand what he's saying here? He couldn't, he couldn't just overlook sin. He couldn't sweep it under the carpet. He couldn't just pass it over. He passed it over in the Old Testament until the fullness of time came and then God sent forth His Son as payment for our sins. It's satisfied. It's the propitiation bringing us back into a relationship with God. And so he writes in verse 27, Where then is boasting? <laughs> there is none. It's excluded, he says. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. How can I take pride in my salvation if I really understand what God's done? You know, I've talked to people over the years that seem proud that they're saved. Folks, if you understand salvation, if you're trusting in Christ and Him alone, how can you be proud? We are sinners saved by grace. And now we're sinning saints. Paul writes again one more time chapter 4 verse 3 but including verse 2 this time for if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before God for what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness 
if we could keep the law and be righteous before God, we could boast in it because it's what we've done. But folks, it's by His mercy that He saved us. It's by His grace. It's through His sacrifice. Verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the law, from the works of the law. Paul wrote to Titus, chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. It's all Christ. We believe here at Cornerstone that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's all for the glory of God alone. And it's revealed in Scripture alone. Salvation is of God. If you're trusting in yourself, in anything that you've done, you've missed the point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him, and it's all about His glory. Even in His love for us, He is glorified. In his beautiful hymn, Horantius Bonner wrote this. Listen to the words as we close. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength can save that which is divine, can bear me safely through. There's no other thing, no other one to trust. Repent of trusting anything other than Jesus Christ and Him alone. His atoning sacrifice that satisfied God's demand, who satisfied God's wrath against sin for all those who believe. Folks, Jesus Christ is enough. He is more than enough. Look to Him. Trust in Him with all your heart. Folks, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He left the glories of heaven, took on human flesh in a sinful, wicked world that hated him. And he died for sinners. He died for his enemies. He bore the wrath of God. He was crucified, and he was victorious over sin, death, and the grave the third day when he rose from the dead. He was risen for our justification. It is enough. It's all we need. There is no other place to look. Look to Him and Him alone. He is enough. Let's pray. Father, thank You, God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May this be a reminder to us today to never, even as believers, to start thinking because of anything that we've done, even as Christians, that we've gained approval before You. We've added to what you've done. We have not. God, thank you for the sacrifice of your dear son, the God-man, Yahweh in human flesh.
that took our place, that bore our sin, that satisfied your wrath, that we might be redeemed out of the storehouse of sin and brought into a relationship with you. Now, God, may we walk, so to speak, in the cool of the evening with you in intimacy and relationship and thanksgiving for who you are and for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.